Hi, this is Nayetta, and you're listening to The Health Show. To The Health Show. And you're listening 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 to The Health Show. The Help Show is a podcast dedicated to connecting individuals to mental health resources in the community. The Help Show is more than a podcast, it is a movement focused on change. Our objectives are to change the perception and stigma associated with mental health, encourage those with mental health disease to get help, foster access to mental health resources, and remove barriers to mental health resources, including those encountered in undeserved communities. We remain committed to supporting the mental health needs of the community during the COVID-19 pandemic. Though the world has changed dramatically in a short period of time, The Help Show is here to help and navigate through the changes and address your mental health needs. Seek help when needed. If distress impacts your daily life for several days or weeks, talk to a clergy member, counselor or doctor, or contact SAMHSA Helpline at 1-800-985-5990. The crisis worker will work to ensure that you feel safe and help identify options and information about mental health services in your area. Your call is confidential and free. This podcast is sponsored by Good Coworking. Good Coworking is the first solar-powered co-working community in the world, focused on cultivating profitable business that do right by people, plus the planet. And while people keep safe in a beautiful planet-filled wellness center space, Get an address for your business, which comes with two daytime co-working days per month to get your meeting done, all for the quarterly cost of $150. Good Work have many membership options from frequent flyer to office rental, so let Good Work help you and find just the right space to help you balance your life and work. Located in Dallas, Texas. Check out goodcoworking.co and tell them the Help Show sent you. September is Suicide Prevention Month. And as the number of people affected by the pandemic, mental health issues skyrocket. Experts are extremely aware of the challenges many people face with mental health. According to CDC, Center for Disease Control and Prevention, suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. It is responsible for more than 48,000 deaths in 2018, resulting in about one death every 11 minutes. This month's podcast will discuss suicide why suicide is the largest growing health problem, how family and friends and communities are affected by the mental health problem. We also address preventative measures for those who suffer from suicide, ideation, and effective programs that address social ecology. Knowing the signs and symptoms of someone suffering from mental health issues such as suicide ideation, better known as suicide thoughts, can save a life and build a community. Today's guest, um, myself, I am the host and founder. My name is Nyetta Reynolds. I am a mental health advocate. Um, My goal is to overcome the challenges that lead to healthy, productive lives. And I'm very passionate about mental health. And so today um, I have some wonderful guests. But before I say how wonderful these guests are, I am going to introduce my favorite guest and co-host and friend, Dr. Kenneth Rogers. Dr. Kenneth Rogers is an adult child and adolescent psychiatrist. This South Carolina native has a passion for helping individuals and families achieve a sense of peace and happiness. 
He and his wife, Vernal Rogers, RN, started Abundant Life Services, LLC, to provide a marriage and family seminars, as well as the office-based care. Currently, Dr. Rogers is a professor in psychiatry at UT Southwestern Medical Center and chief of psychiatry at Parkland Hospital. Recently, Dr. Rogers joined Southern Area Behavior Healthcare to provide care in the Southern Dallas County. Dr. Rogers received his MD and residency training in the University of South Carolina. Additionally, he holds degrees in public health and management from UCLA University of South Carolina. Thank you for Dr. Rogers for always um, being my co-host. I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you, as always. Um, thank you for letting me hang out with you. I feel special. Oh, oh anytime, anytime. Um, we also have Ms. Vanetta Halliburton, co-founder, executive chair, chairman of the Grant Halliburton Foundation, a frequent speaker on youth and mental health suicide prevention in schools at professional conferences throughout the North Texas community. Last but not least, we have Dr. Brad Swa. He is the president and chief executive officer of the Counseling Center. Dr. Swa has provided counseling training for educators, social, emotional, instructional programming for children and parent education in the park cities in North Dallas for over 25 years. Dr. Swa offers tips on parenting, family life, and mental health in regular articles and frequent interviews on the WFAA TV channel. Suicide is a very difficult topic to discuss, but silence can have a tragic result and knowledge can save lives. This message that things can get better is more important today than ever, especially during this, um, the pandemic. So we are going to start um, this podcast. Before we start, kind of want you guys to know we have Q&A. So those that are online right now, um, there is a box that says Q&A. If you have questions, please put your questions um, on the box um, on the top that says Q&A. And then at the end, we have a survey. So please complete the survey. This, is, this enables us to strengthen our podcast and continues to provide a resource for the community. So let's get the podcast started. Um, so I'm going to start with a couple statistics and then we can move forward. So according to the World Health Organization, there are close to 800,000 people die due to, due to suicide every year, which is one person every 40 seconds. Suicide is a global phenomenon and occurs throughout the lifespan. Effective and evidence based on the interventions can be implemented at the population, the subpopulation individual levels to prevent suicide and suicide attempts. There are inactions that are for each adult who died by suicide. There may have been more than 20 others attempting suicide. So also we have the 79%, which is in fact 79% of the suicides occur in low middle income countries in 2016. And suicide is accounted for 1.4 of all the deaths worldwide, making that the 18th leading cause in death in 2016. So these statistics are um, very um, disturbing, first and foremost. And um, Dr. Rogers, would you like to kind of speak on those statistics for me? 
Well, I think they're they're kind of um, really important. Um, as you may well know, this is the last day of National Suicide Prevention Month. Um, and so I think by highlighting the number of people that died, I think is important, but also the number of people that are struggling right now who are thinking about doing things to harm themselves. I'm hoping that through our show tonight, through our discussion, that we can actually bring some hope um, to folks that are that are contemplating um, self-harm and perhaps give them other options that they can think about um, during this difficult time. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so we're going to start off the, um, the discussion, what is suicide? And we're gonna to talk to that, um, Dr. Brad Squaw about that a little bit. What is suicide and what happens in a person's life before they consider suicide? Well, I think one uh, point that is very important to make, and that is when somebody dies from suicide, they're dying from mental illness or a mental health challenge. Um, sometimes when, when we say, um, when we talk about suicide, we must say that because there's a lot that led up to that. And there, there's pain, um, there's hurt um, that led um, to that, that moment. Um, so when we talk about it, we're, we're talking more about the fact that depression is an illness, that depression is not a matter of somebody who didn't have enough faith or um, somebody who, who didn't have enough will to feel better or to get better. Um, so so that, um, that desire to want to end that pain, end that problem, um, it is a difficult topic to talk about, and I know um, there are many great groups out there like the Halliburton Foundation. You'll hear from Vanita who bring up this conversation and I appreciate you doing this um, because it's just not true that, that talking about it might uh, suggest it to somebody. Um, often I believe we're afraid to talk about suicide or ask somebody, you know, tell me about your suicidal thoughts. We're afraid we might be giving them the idea that's just not the case. Uh, we've got to talk about it, and that's what we're doing right now. So, for everyone that they don't that that don't know Miss um, Halliburton, Miss Benita, um, she has a little bit of her story herself. Um, her son um, Grant, correct? Um, he committed suicide, and so I, I would like for her to kind of briefly talk about that, and we're we'll going more into depth about that. And so, when we just spoke about what happens in a person's life before they consider suicide and Grant um, committed suicide. Can we talk a little bit about that, um, Ms. Pena? Sure, I tell the story of my son Grant almost every time I speak, not because it's a unique story, but because it's becoming all too common. And um, so, you know, Grant was on the outside, his life looked golden. He was a bolt of energy. I mean, he lit up every room that he entered. He kept us laughing with his antics and wit, and he astonished us with his music and art. He was very talented. When he was 14, he was diagnosed with depression. And despite that, he, he flourished in high school. And during those years, the next five years, our family did all we knew to do to help him battle his depression, including a 30-day stay in a psychiatric hospital where he was additionally diagnosed with bipolar disorder one with psychoses, which is a very serious form of that illness. But one day, just two weeks out of the hospital, I think the voices in his head just obliterated all rational thought. And it seemed to him that the only way to end his terrible emotional turmoil was to end his life. 
So at the age of 19, Grant, driven to the edge of despair, jumped to his death from a 10-story building a block from home. And I always say I'll never know what caused him to give up hope so utterly that he thought the only way to end his pain was to end his life. But I do know this, every person who is struggling deserves hope and help, and all of us can learn how to deliver that hope and help to someone who is struggling, whether it's with mental illness or thoughts of suicide or, or whatever it may be. Absolutely, absolutely. So after, um, because I, I want to talk to, um, with the discussion too, um, after he committed suicide, he did, he committed suicide, um, there's grieving. So was there a different, how did you grieve? And how did your husband grieve? And then I want to talk to Dr. Rogers and Dr. Brad Swa is, is there a different way that a man and woman, they grieve? You know, do men, do men grieve differently um, than women grieve? Mm -hmm. So that's very true in most cases. And in the, in the 15 years since my son died, I have worked with a lot of couples who have experienced the death and often the suicide death of a child. And uh, so many times the grieving is different uh, for each. Um, my husband and I were not together at the time of Grant's death, but I do know that, you know, he grieved in his way and I grieved in mine. Um, and, and there's no way to describe the grief of losing a child who dies by his own hand. There's just no way to plumb the depths of that. Um, it just, it, it just, it just pains you to your very core. And some people want to talk about it a lot. Some people need to just, you know, draw in and deal with it privately. Um, but often I see, we see that men will, um, go back to work pretty quickly after the loss of a child to suicide, because that's, that's their way of dealing with it. That's a way of grieving is to, to stay busy and, and do something to keep from going crazy. Um, often the, the, the wife, the mom doesn't understand that because she can't function. She can not get out of the house. I, I had that sort of situation where I felt like I couldn't leave the house. I would make plans to do something with somebody. And at the last minute I would say, I can't move. I can't, I can't go out with you. Um, so it, it really is different. And often that causes tension within the relationship because they're on different pages entirely. And it's really hard for um, if I'm the, the, the wife and I'm grieving and I can't stop crying for days and days at a time, my husband seems to be getting on with his life. Well, that's, that causes a lot of tension sometimes. And I'm, I'm sure Dr. Schwal can speak to that more um, accurately than I can, but it's very true that we, we all grieve in different ways. Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, Dr. Rogers, why is that? There, there, there's, there's one thing I want to actually talk about a little, little bit, um, and it's kind of made me think about some of your statements for, versus for Vanitas. I think the first one is the idea of committing suicide. Um, we often say that in our society, but I think the idea of death by suicide is really a lot more appropriate. Um, as we were talking earlier, I think that when you look at reasons why people die, the act is really the final pathway that often started with many things that happened before that. I'm depressed, I'm despondent, um, I'm feeling like this will never get better. My pain is so incredibly overwhelming that I can't really deal with it. 
to the point where I now decide that the only option I really have is to take my life. And the reason why I put that out as important is I think sometimes we burden families um, with the idea that this person committed an act to get away from something or committed an act against something. Um, but when we think about the pain associated with um, mental illness in many cases, I think it becomes incredibly important in a healing process um, to recognize that it's not always what we call committing suicide. For example, if we think about you know, someone who dies from a heart attack, we frequently don't think about someone committed a heart attack. Um, and so I think having the words there are incredibly important. And the reason I bring that up is because as we're talking about how men and women may grieve or think about things differently, um, oftentimes one of the things I've, I've talked to a lot of mothers about especially is this guilt related to why did this event happen? Um, why couldn't I stop it? Why couldn't I do something different? Um, versus fathers oftentimes who look like they're getting along fairly well, but maybe struggling in, in very, 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 very different ways. Okay. Dr. Swap. So I, I find what Dr. Rogers said so important and uh, really just want to reiterate that point. And um, that is, it is about death from suicide. And um, my main interaction, our work at the center um, is in several different communities that are closest to us. And uh, certainly suicide has a community impact. And um, there are, are several communities where we provide uh, mental health education, provide resources. Mm -hmm. And so at the center, we, we think about the family, the survivors, and we also think about healing within the community. Uh, the experience of teachers who were involved in the, the youth's life um, uh, other people in the school, um, and then certainly students. So one thing I'd like to point out is, is that importance of one, uh, supporting the entire community, um, supporting uh, those loved ones of the one who died from suicide, um, and then also turning that into advocacy and education. So um, everybody, uh, I believe, as we've been saying, does grieve uh, differently. There can be certain patterns, certainly, um, but, but I did want to bring up that importance of also addressing the communities that are involved. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so how, how do you respond to a loved one who admits he or she feels frustrated, down, sad, or unhappy? And how do you support them with unknowingly dismissing them or, or shaming them, Dr. Swan? So I want to start, but uh, I, I believe for these questions where obviously I know you have this intent, need to hear from each, uh, e each of the others too, um, just because there is so much wisdom um, represented. Um, and that would be remembering that we need to ask if someone is okay. We need to ask the question. If we notice they're not okay, uh, we need to ask it. Remembering that bringing up, you know, wh what have you thought about suicide? Um, is very important. That doesn't give them the idea. Um, even asking questions about intent and method and when, 
there's nothing wrong with asking questions. That there is nothing going to be wrong with asking questions. So the idea is to bring it out in the open and then to move to the next thing, um, to keep that person. It's, it's an intervention. It's a, a creating a, a barrier as much as possible and then pushing back to the next thing, the, the, the next uh, opportunity for help or um, to have an objective. So those are my initial thoughts, but I want to stop there to hear from you. <laughs> so I, the question, I want to talk to um, Vanetta about um, about grant and um, what happened could you see some different signs that what grant was going through um, did he ever say mom I'm feeling this way um, I feel like harming myself is, is there anything that you could think of now you know with grant well obviously he was struggling with psychological pain um, having been in the hospital for 30 days to try to 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 battle that. Um, yes, he did. But you know what? The, the most important two things. One is in the five and a half years that our family was trying to get Grant all the help that he needed to manage his depression and ultimately his bipolar disorder, not one provider and not even the hospital after 30 days in a psychiatric hospital ever told us there was such a thing as warning signs of suicide. Now, that may be shocking. I find it shocking now. But the answer to your question is yes. My son exhibited every warning sign of suicide that I now know about. I just didn't know what I was looking for. Absolutely. But it's really important that we learn those warning signs, what they look like, changes in behavior, um, rages, um, anger, risky behaviors, giving things away. There, there are a number of warning signs that, that should prompt you to want to say, hey, can we talk? I see, some, I see you really withdrawing and isolating. I see a lot of changes in you, and I just want to know, you know, what's going on with you? How are you feeling? And you have to get to that question, as Dr. Schwal said, you have to get to that question that's really hard to look another human being in the eye and say, have you felt so bad that you've been thinking about taking your life? That's really hard to ask someone you love. But if you don't ask that question, you will not know the answer and you need to know. A person who is burdened with thoughts of wanting to leave this earth is, is reluctant to talk about it. But if someone opens that door, they usually feel a great sense of relief that they can get that off their chest and say, yes, I have been thinking about taking my own life. And that opens the door for you to get that person help. It's really important to get them immediate help, um, not to say, well, let's, let's keep an eye on this and let's see if you feel better and I'll check back in with you. A person who is suicidal can act on those feelings in a split second and there are actions you want to take. Um, to do that, to, to do something about that immediately. Okay. So a, a question I have for, uh, I believe, I know that suicide is preventable, but how, this is questions for Dr. Rogers. Um, so is suicide preventable? And if, if so, how can you prevent suicide? And what process would a person go through to prevent suicide, Dr. Rogers? You're on mute. Yeah, I, I'm going I'm to, rather than answer that question, can, can I just ask Vanita a few questions? Oh, okay. okay. Would, would that be, be okay with oh, you? Absolutely. And, and I, I'm wondering, 
you said that the hospital didn't give you any sense of the warning signs and what to what to look for. Um, are there things that you feel like could have been done differently from a healthcare provider standpoint that would have made you and would have would have put you and your family in a different space during that time? And what do you think some of those things might have been as you were able to look back on it now? Yes, I do. And I, I want to say, although I will never, I won't say the name of this hospital, I want to say it's one of the finest and remains one of the finest in North Texas and in our city. Um, so when I look back and, and through a lens of what I know now, it's very surprising to me. Um, the discharge papers that, that we got in the meeting, in the discharge meeting on the 30th day, uh, simply said, be sure that he takes his medication, gets plenty of rest and keeps to a schedule because that's good for bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw things in the hospital that were confusing to me I, and, I, and I would report it to the psychiatrist and to the um, nurse. For example, um, there was a period of time where he stopped bathing and stopped changing clothes from day to day which was very odd for him, very out of character for my son. I mentioned it to them separately and both the psychiatrist and the, the nurse said, that's nothing to worry about, don't worry about it. We'll speak to him about it. Well, those are, that's a classic warning sign that someone is giving up on things. I mean, personal hygiene just doesn't matter and it's one of the warning signs. Um, another thing that I found um, frustrating was that it was very hard to speak with the psychiatrist. I literally would get up at six o'clock in the morning and, and travel to the hospital and wait for the psychiatrist to make his rounds so that I could catch him and talk to him about what was going on and just to, to, to check in. So, so many things about that psychiatric, that month in a hospital were so different from a hospital stay for any other kind of illness that it still blows my mind to think that would never happen if it had been cancer or been a, a heart problem or something else like that. So yes, there were, there were many, many things about that experience that um, were very um, dumbfounding at the time and, and still, still confusing, I think. I have talked to the medical director there in years since then, and um, I've been assured that uh, I said one time, uh, did anything about Grant's death change anything about the way you do things? Or I wasn't being specific, but I said, did it, did it matter? And the director said, we have made complete changes in a lot of the policies that we have now. And so, yes, it's made a difference. Did that answer the question? (laughs) Absolutely. And, and, And I wanted to hear that because I think sometimes in situations, the medical establishment doesn't do its job. Um, and many times it's because physicians, nurses, people that work on psychiatric units can get into a sense of denial themselves in terms of the risk that's actually there. Um, so as I'm listening to Vanita talking, um, there's all these warning signs that she's able to recount that had she known more about at the time would have probably caused her and her family to approach the situation in a very different way. And so one of the things that I've encouraged families to do, and as one who's worked with lots of medical students and trainees over time, really encourage them to do, is the first place you really have to go is understanding the family um, and making sure that you're able to put a young person, or in some cases, an older person, into a, into a context um, to know what those risks are, um, to really understand 
how do family members respond to each other? And is this response that you're seeing different than what you would have seen in the past? Um, if you find an individual who's starting to give away things um, and it's their prized possession, then something says, okay, maybe there's a different situation. Maybe there's something going on here um, that we may want to want to look into. Those changes in behavior and all those kinds of things, I think, are, are warning signs that we really have to work with families and make sure that they understand the risk that's there um, so that they can work, work accordingly. And I think like many other disorders, um, sometimes as healthcare professionals, we don't always do a great job of even recognizing it ourselves. Yeah. Absolutely. My son kept a journal. He was really big on, on writing. And one day when I visited him in the hospital, he said, Mom, how far is our house from here? And I said, I don't know, maybe 30 miles. And after he died, I saw that on one page of his journal that he kept in the hospital, which he left open on his bedside table, he had written, I have found my portal for leaving this earth. It is 30 miles from this hospital room. So all the signs were there. When you, when you know what the warning signs are, we talk about those. You, if you see two or three or four, you can, you can start to, to talk more with the person and notice more. You may see more and more of those warning signs. They're so vivid, but not if you don't know what you're looking at. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is, that is so true. It's so important to talk about it. It's so important to educate yourself about mental health and suicide. And myself and um, Vanita were talking about it before the show actually started, how my friend, when he committed suicide, he had all the signs. He had every sign of a person that was, um, that was suicidal, that um, had suicide ideation, but I didn't know. And, it, and that around that time, I had a bachelor, bachelor, so I wasn't, I was, you know, educated but not educated in mental health. And it's so important to just be aware, um, to, to just to be cognizant, to, you know, always say you don't know what you don't know. And that is the worst feeling because going back to, to preventive measures, what, what, what could have been done if I would have known, you know? So um, Dr. Rogers, what are some preventive measures for suicide? Well, again, uh, re recognizing the signs, and Vanita's talked a lot about, about those signs and, and what they are. Um, but I think that one of the things that she said earlier re really jumped out at me, and that's the willingness to actually have the conversation with the person. Um, as human beings, we're, we're afraid to have conversations where we don't want to know the answer. Um, and to be willing to ask the question, are you thinking about harming yourself right now? We have to be comfortable with the answer of yes um, and knowing what to, what to actually do about it. Um, and so, again, changes in, in behavior, um, sleep issues that become more erratic, behaviors that become more, more erratic, um, beginning to give things away, um, beginning to talk more thoughts about death. Um, looking at journaling, looking at drawings that people are doing, are you starting to see more of those things that are becoming um, darker um, over, over time? Musical changes, um, is music starting to become darker um, in terms of what, what folks are, are listening to? 
it's it's actually relatively rare that you see someone die by suicide where you haven't actually seen those changes or some changes beginning to occur. Um, it usually doesn't occur in, in a vacuum. And again, like Vanita was saying earlier, it's really about being able to notice those changes, which are going to be very individual. Um, but also there's, there's some constants that are always, always there, which we've talked about. Absolutely. I have to take a breather. You know, this is a, um, no matter how much education I have, like this month is a very special month for me. And I'm kind of, I'm good, but it's, let me just take a couple breaths. Okay. So the thing is that um, the next question I want to, I want to ask, how do we educate the community? We're all advocates, of course, but how do we really educate our communities, communities about suicide? And if, um, and not only be that one person advocating and only be that one person talking to a person, like how do we co collectively educate our communities? I know the Halliburton Foundation is such a, a great resource. I'll, I'll start by sharing our um, the center's uh, little niche. Um, so the Center for Integrative Counseling, we have around 40 uh, therapists and psychologists. And when people come to us for counseling and we see children, teens, and adults, um, they've already identified that there is an issue, a concern in their lives. Um, with youth that we see who have suicidal ideation then. Uh, the goal is to equip the, the young person uh, with skills, provide the counseling that is appropriate um, to, to counter that depression, to fight that depression, uh, not only to focus on reducing symptoms, but also increasing habits that promote well-being. And then, as Dr. Rogers said earlier, uh, really supporting the family and uh, the entire family system around that young person. Um, again, in therapy, so important that we ask the question and we um, not be afraid to ask the question. Uh, so I think we have a responsibility, as Vanita is saying, to make sure that we're not ignoring it and that, as Dr. Rogers said, we're not afraid to ask the question or are in denial ourselves. Um, another part of our model uh, is that we have offices all across communities. So we're from McKinney to Waco and Rockwall to Arlington. Uh, we have offices in churches as well as in doctor's offices. Um, we take insurance because we believe that it's important to, for people to be able to use their health benefits for mental health, which is a health issue. And so we're able to be where people are. We say where they live, work, play, and pray uh, to make counseling more visible. When we think about counseling so often, um, it, is, it is certainly it's supposed to be confidential, but I think our society cordons off counseling so much that then people are not comfortable to reach out for counseling. Uh, so we believe by being visible in the community that increases people's comfort with counseling. Uh, we also go into areas of poverty where people don't have insurance and we work alongside other nonprofits that are serving families who deal with poverty. And there we're really on the front lines because families coming, let's say, for food um, uh, or for clothing, uh, they, not, they may not be aware that they are facing a mental health issue, but we're there. 
And finally, through education, through workshops at churches, uh, schools like the Helen Park ISD, Dallas ISD, um, by providing education uh, that is based within communities, within churches, um, by participating in symposiums, much like what the Halliburton Foundation hosts and, and other groups, uh, we get the word out. And so that is another important part of our mission is not only the therapy or the psychological assessments, but also uh, the education to catch those people um, who may not be aware that they're actually facing a challenge and encourage the destigmatization of mental health issues and uh, destigmatizing getting help for those challenges. Okay. <clears throat> and, um, Miss um, Vanita, what about the resources that you gave um, me today on the PDF? Can you talk a little bit about those resources that you guys provide? I would love to do that. I'd like to add a word about education to what Dr. Schwal said. You know, mm -hmm. I think of it this way. If we were talking about heart health here tonight instead of mental health, mm -hmm. if I were out there teaching um, uh, people how to do CPR, that would be really great, right? To save lives if you encounter someone with a, having a heart attack in that moment. But wouldn't it be better if we taught people how to take care of their heart health in the first place and we go back to diet and exercise and all those things. And that's what we wanna do with suicide prevention. We like to go back and talk about stress, which is the number one trigger for depression and talk about depression and how to recognize that and then talk about suicide prevention. But suicide prevention, that's the point of the heart attack. We want to we back up and educate people, make it okay for them to talk about their mental and emotional health and, and, and so forth. So we think that's really important. And we're in the schools and in the community as well. Um, last year alone, we trained over 50,000 students, teachers, parents, uh, professional groups. We, we really focus on young people. Uh, we want this to be the generation that comes up treating diseases above the neck the same way we treat diseases below the neck. And education is the answer to all of that. It, it's, it's so vital that we do that. Absolutely. So, so resources are important because say we have people recognizing when they're struggling and when they need help and say that everybody starts to feel okay. It's, just, it's okay to say I'm hurting just as, as it is okay to say, I think I've broken my leg. Um, we get to that point, there is a big barrier between people who need help and people who can provide that help. Uh, sometimes for young people, parents are a barrier because of the stigma. They really don't want to, to acknowledge that their child has that kind of problem. Um, so we're really trying to empower people with, with resources and getting help. We have a... Um, a navigate, mental health navigation line that is designed not to be a crisis line, but a helpline that people can call and can just say, I'm looking for a therapist, I'm looking for a psychiatrist. Um, we research um, you know, local providers across North Texas for them that fit their ability to pay, their location, the issue, the age, all those things. And then we get back to them with some options just to, to help them make informed uh, decisions about their care. Uh, we also have a website called hereforTexas.com, and it has over 900 North Texas mental health providers in it, and you can go there and search 
uh, by any kind of filters, same filters, your location, the issue you're looking for, the age, your ability to pay, the language that you need spoken, and it will pull out of that 900 database of 900 providers, the ones that fit your criteria. And again, this is to help people, um, you know, get over that barrier of just not knowing who to call or who to ask, because you can ask anyone for a referral to a dentist or a doctor, but when it's depression or anxiety or another mental health issues, we're sometimes reluctant to ask um, a, a coworker, a friend, a neighbor, or sometimes even family for help with finding mental health resources. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Dr. Rogers? I, I absolutely agree. Um, I think the other thing to keep in mind is as you're looking for resources, I've always encouraged people, if you go to the first therapist and you find that life is not clicking, um, to feel comfortable trying somebody different um, because every therapist is not meant for every person. Um, there are some people that I work extremely well with and we get along fantastically. There are other people who feel like this guy may be too laid back and may not be assertive enough enough for me. So we're all human beings. Our personalities are all in that in that mix. Uh, most good therapists can change up things based on the person sitting in front of them. Front of them, but ultimately, at the end of the day, there may be times when there's not not a good mix. And so I always encourage people to try to look at the resources that are available. But then, if it's not working, also also to look look beyond that. Um, the other thing that I think is important is, again, to encourage families to, to work together. Um, oftentimes, we think of ourselves as lone wolves, and we actually approach things that way. Um, but one of the things I've always tried to do as a, as a therapist is really try to get at least one other family member involved at some point in time. Um, because that actually gives people a buffer when they may not be willing to come and see me. Um, as symptoms get worse, as people may become more depressed or more anxious, one of the things they may not want to do is to come in an office and talk about their fears and depression and anxiety. But if there's another person there that's encouraged them, that we've helped to kind of train up a little bit to recognize some of the signs and also to be, I think, I think of them as an assistant therapist, um, oftentimes we can get people across a lot of those hurdles. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, we're going to take a quick um, break, but I would like to make a, um, take a moment and thank everyone in our listening audience for listening today. Um, we also like to remind everyone that we are a nonprofit organization operating entirely off of our generous support for our donors. If you'd like to give to our organization, we appreciate you. You can send your donation via Cash App, Money Sign The Help Show or on our website at www.thehelpshow.org. There's no donation too small. Every dollar given will strengthen our efforts. If you'd like to donate $1,500 or more and become a VIP sponsor, then we have some additional packages listed on our website. And you can visit us at www.thehelpshow.org for more details. So um, back to the resources. So um, what you see on the slideshow that we have. We have Child Help Hotline. Miss um, Benita talked about the, um, the National Suicide Lifeline number, which is 1-800-273-TALK. Um, we also, she spoke about the Mental Health Navigate Line, which is 972-525-8181. And then she talked about the um, hereforTexas.com 
Um, I checked all those out. Really great resources. Thank you so much, uh, Ms. Vanita. Um, also, we want to talk about the, the individual experiencing stress and anxiety due to the pandemic. So I also have some other information, um, some websites for the LGBTQ um, 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 community for, it's called Trevor, the Trayvar Project. Um, it's a national mental health resource. Um, and I said about the crisis um, line and then text start at 678678. And so we're going to roll down to our cover another conversation. We're almost done with this segment um, with suicide prevention. The question I have for everyone, um, let's revisit some of these resources. So the resource that we're revisiting, has everyone you has everyone, of course, Ms. Halliburton, <laughs> you have visited your um, your resources, but has everyone visit these resources, the center counseling which is um, Dr. Bradshaw, but the Child Help Hotline, Crisis Text Line, and the Anxiety Depression Association of America. I'm just curious. Yes? Are, no. you, are you, you're asking the panelists? Yes, yeah, I'm asking the panel. Yeah, I'm really curious because, you know, sometimes we give a, we say, oh, go check this resource out, but we don't really check out the resource ourselves. So that's a question I just, I was curious about. This, well, I can say I'm most familiar with the Halliburton Foundation here for Texas and, of course, my own, uh, our own center website, um, but do know that those other helplines are, are so key, uh, but here for Texas is a key one. So, um, so I'm saying I've got familiarity with those, but perhaps not all the others. Okay. You know, I, that's great. Yeah. Sometimes we're so busy doing our work, we don't have time to check them all out. I did something recently, though. I, the, the crisis text line is a national crisis line, but it's texting. Yeah. And I think this is a wonderful um, new resource because we, the generation that's coming up now, most of them prefer texting to talking. Yeah. So I tried this out. I texted them. And I texted that I'm not suicidal. I just want to see how this line works. And my, my experience, I'm so glad I did. I could not believe how conversational, how warm, how gracious, and how fast they were. It felt just like talking to a person. So I was really impressed with the crisis text line. And, and I know the suicide, National Suicide Prevention Lifeline does a great job, too. Um, and then as well, the... Um, the NAMI helpline is a really good one too. It's like our helpline, it operates Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Because people aren't always in crisis. Sometimes they just need some direction, some help, some way of knowing where to start to find resources and things like that. So there are all of these resources here play a different role in helping people, I think. You know, I'm really glad that you, because what I do, um, in order for me to give the correct resource or if I'm talking to someone, how I can feel it can be compatible what they're looking for, I actually go check out the resources myself. So that's why I was just really curious. That just kind of popped up, but I, I had to know. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, so we're getting ready to end the, um, the session, but before um, we end the session, which is very, very important. So if I feel like I wanted to end my life, how do I ask for help? I need some help. Um, I need some help. Dr. Rogers, help me. What do I do? So repeat that question again. If I feel like I may want to end my life, how do I ask for help without judgment? 
That is a very good question, but I think also a very difficult question okay. um, because I think there are a number of factors. Um, and those number of factors have to do with one, the personality of the person that's asking for help and the personality of those who are around. What I frequently found is that as people become more depressed um, or more manic or more anxious, they also become more withdrawn from other people. Um, and as those symptoms go on for longer periods of time, the people in your immediate circle begin to dwindle mm -hmm. um, or become more distant themselves. And so reaching out for help often becomes more challenging even at the time when you actually need the help. Um, and so one of the things that I, I like to do when I'm working with people, especially very early in the process, is to think about how can you continue to develop relationships? How can you strengthen relationships? Because relationships are very protective in lots of different ways. If you can get somebody that actually has one friend, one family member, one person to whom they're close, that I would disappoint if I, if I actually died, that's a protective factor that may end up saving someone's life. And so I think in just encouraging people to reach out, um, even when you're, you're not hurting. We're, we're in a society where we were talking about the text line earlier. I think there are alternate ways of, you know, having relationships, sometimes talking, talking, sometimes texting, sometimes, you know, other electronic means, but whatever it is that, that I think one uses for communication, that's, that's kind of my number one thing. I always try to try to push. Okay. I like that. Is any, uh, something that Kevin Hines said recently really struck me. Uh, Kevin Hines, if you don't know him, is a survivor of a suicidal jump off the Golden Gate Bridge, and now he's an avid suicide advocate. But he recently said, we tell people who are struggling, we tell them all the time to reach out for help. And what we don't understand is if they're at that low point of thinking, their own, taking, thinking of taking their own life, they can't reach out. We have to reach in. And so this is why it's so important for us um, to, to watch for those signs, to, to start those conversations, to ask that hard question, are you in so much pain that you've thought of ending your life? They may not be capable of reaching out at the point that they are. Okay, I like that. We are, Dr. Swa. Well, I'm gonna say uh, I would like to concur uh, with what Benita said. We must be in tune. We must watch for the warning signs, not be afraid to talk about suicide, uh, be proactive. Uh, so um, that to me is, is what is key and keep the conversation going just like you're doing. And I so appreciate your work and we need more people like you. Thank you so much. We, have, um, we do have a Q&A question um, from someone. They wanted to know, what do you do if you ask someone if they're okay and they say yes, and when you know that they're not okay, where do you go from there? Well, I always say take, 
take that as if, if you wouldn't be asking that question if you didn't think that they were not okay. So I think of are you okay as kind of a warm-up question just to say, you know, I want to check in on you. Mm-hmm. And I say when we're talking to teenagers, expect them to say, I'm fine, leave me alone. That's just your warm-up act. But be prepared to be specific and say, well, you know, I've noticed lately that you're isolating a lot and you're, you know, you haven't hung out with your friends that you usually go out with on Friday night. Be a little specific without judgment, um, just, just to put those out there. So I wonder what's going on. There must be something going on. And I, I just say gingerly, tread gingerly into that conversation. But I think if you persist very gently, if someone's hurting, you can probably draw that out. Okay. I'm not the psychiatrist or the therapist in the room here, though, so I, I, I defer to the gentleman. But you're very, very good at it. I think you really can't do it, honestly. I, have, I think you did a great job. But, 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 I, but I think that raises a really good point. It, it's, it's really more of an open-ended question. Um, I rarely ask someone, are you okay? Because are you okay really implies a degree of judgment. Um, it's probably easier to ask a question, so how's it going? Um, how's life treating you? What's happening? I noticed you've been looking a little down recently. Is, has anything changed? How's work? How's school? Um, and I think coming to it from a very tangential um, direction oftentimes doesn't put people on guard as much as, are you okay? Because are you okay requires me to either say yes or no. And if I say no, I'm not okay, that has a lot of implications for me. But what you're really wanting to know is, is there something that you need from me that I can supply to you right now? Um, Are there ways that I can help you? And so being able to ask questions that allow you to get there without asking a yes, no question, I think becomes incredibly important. So I think that tangential approach um, is generally how I would do it. And I, I, I like your response. I mean, you know, I'm with you. What about you, Dr. Swa? You have any um, rebuttals on that or are we all okay? <laughs> I would say be proactive. If you see something, say something. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm going to end this podcast with some do's and don'ts. And then we're going to be done for tonight. Um, do listen to your loved ones. Do take them seriously. Do advocate. Do be willing to support them. Do not judge them. Do not think they're simply want attention. Do not attempt to diagnose them. And do not dismiss them or make their pain about you. Remember, everyone handles stress differently. Everyone grieves differently. But we all will need love and support in our life and time, especially when we are hurting. Just remember to be kind. I want to say thank you, everyone, for um, I want to thank everyone for attending the podcast today. Um, I'm extremely grateful for Mrs. Halliburton, Ms. Benita, for Dr. Um, Kenneth Rogers, and my dear friend, Dr. Brad Swa. Thank you guys so, so much. Um, at the end of this um, slot, um, at the end of the podcast, a survey will pop up. Please fill out the survey. Um, but you can check us out and listen to this on um, Spotify, YouTube, 
Podbean and Apple Podcasts. And today we're sponsored by um, Good Work and Auckland Research. And also I want to thank our partner, um, the Dallas um, Library and also Good Work Co-working Space. So thank you guys so, so much for um, um, being our great guests. And I will talk to everyone soon. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Right. Thank you. Good night. Bye. -bye. Bye. That was wonderful. Hi, this is Nayetta, and you're listening to The Health Show. To The Health Show. And you're listening 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 to The Health Show. We'd like to take a moment and thank everyone in our listening audience for listening today. We'd also like to remind everyone that we are a nonprofit organization operating entirely off the generous support of our donors. If you'd like to give to our organization, we appreciate you. You can send your donation via Cash App, Money Sign, The Help Show, or on our website at www.thehelpshow.org. There's no donation too small. Every dollar given will strengthen our efforts. If you'd like to donate $1,500 or more and become a VIP sponsor, then we have some additional packages listed on our website. And you can visit us at www.thehelpshow.org for more details. This podcast is sponsored by Good Coworking. Good Coworking is the first solar-powered co-working community in the world focused on cultivating profitable business that do right by people plus the planet, all while keeping you safe in a beautiful plant-filled wellness center space located in Dallas, Texas. Check out Good Coworking Co. and tell them the help show sent you. This podcast is produced by Nayeta Reynolds and Ben Fenton. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Help Show. Remember to subscribe to the podcast. Please leave your comments. We want to know what you think. Thank you for listening and please stay tuned.